Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Previously on Fox News Rewind, Financial Crisis 08. The tremendous crowds which you see gathered outside the stock exchange are due to the greatest crash in the history of the New York Stock Exchange in market prices. It's not my intention to do away with government. It is rather to make it work. Work with us, not over us. Our leaders and their old ideas have failed us. Banks were essentially rewarded for making higher risk loans. It's the biggest infusion of cash since the 9-11 attacks, and it's tied directly to subprime mortgage defaults. The credit crisis was just too much. Investment banking giant Lehman Brothers filing for bankruptcy. Well, it led to a panic. It was a full-fledged panic. The Dow on the day, down more than 500 points on the day. After Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the decision to bail out yet another financial company is causing a stir. There's much blame to go around for causing this crisis. My administration continues to work with the Congress on a uh, rescue plan. This can't be cobbled together behind closed doors. Never before and never since have I ever seen an actual econometric judgment at that moment. And I'm screaming at the top of my lungs that things are going in a very bad direction. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Episode 6, Epilogue. Good morning. For years, America's automakers have faced serious challenges. Burdensome costs, a shrinking share of the market, and declining profits. In recent months, the global financial crisis has made these challenges even more severe. Now some U.S. auto executives say that their companies are nearing collapse and that the only way they can buy time to restructure is with help from the federal government. It's a difficult situation that involves fundamental questions about the proper role of government. On the one hand, government has a responsibility not to undermine the private enterprise system. On the other hand, government has a responsibility to safeguard the broader health and stability of our economy. Addressing the challenges in the auto industry requires us to balance these two responsibilities. This has been a a challenging exercise for everyone involved on both sides. Uh, We all remember just a couple of months ago, we were called upon to rescue the American financial system. And at the end of the day, after a few fits and starts, uh, 74 out of 99 senators present thought it was a good idea to do that. 
It was a vote that uh, we all proudly cast from our individual seats, and most of us supported it. It was a broad bipartisan uh, vote uh, supported by the two presidential candidates as well. Now we've moved into a, a very tricky and challenging area, and that is sort of industry by industry rescue. And we've had before us this, the whole question of the viability of the American automobile manufacturers. And none of us uh, want to see them go down, uh, but very few of us had anything to do with the dilemma that they've created for themselves. We are here to acknowledge that it has been a brutal week for our auto makers and for auto workers across the country and for Michigan. It's been a really excruciating to watch this critical manufacturing industry and the American worker get skewered by members of Congress. Our automakers and our workers are the victims of the financial meltdown and not the cause of it. Yeah, so it was December 2008, literally the final month of the Bush administration. Fox News chief Washington correspondent, Mike Emanuel. President Bush had been told basically that the American auto industry was on the verge of collapse. And so the president announced a $17.4 billion bailout to General Motors and Chrysler, uh, $13.4 billion extended immediately. Um, but basically they warned of a loss of about a million jobs without the federal government stepping in. I think President Bush as a free market guy was tempted to say, you know, like, hey, the marketplace is supposed to dictate this and that the American auto industry should be figuring out what consumers want. Um, but years later, former President Bush said that basically he didn't want to, you know, leave office with 21 percent unemployment. And so he felt like he made the right move, even though it was against perhaps some of his uh, core principles of conservatism. But basically it saved an American auto industry at a critical time. And to be fair, GM and Chrysler were in the worst shape. Uh, Ford was in better shape, but then they were worried about competing against basically government sub subsidies uh, of the other two. And so Ford was also in line to get some relief as well. I feel like the auto piece of this is, is often overlooked in some ways. Fox Business Network financial correspondent. Jackie DeAngelis. Because what are the two big things that Americans borrow money for? We're still doing it for mortgages and auto loans. And so, of course, uh, our U.S. auto industry was impacted. Basically, what ended up happening after the dot-com bubble burst and 9-11, um, we had some accounting scandals like Enron. This is all early 2000s. Um, the Fed took interest rates down because it wanted to stimulate the economy. Uh, once cheap money was out there, people started buying more things, including houses and cars. Um, you know, there was a lot going on during the bubble that fueled the the, the tipping point of the crisis. Um, but then ultimately what ended up happening was interest rates had to rise again. They couldn't stay low forever to cool the market. And when that happened and um, credit dried up, then that's when the auto industry was in trouble too, um, you know, as a, a sidebar from the housing industry. And essentially they were brought into it in that, you know, 
the big companies in the United States employed thousands of people. If they were to go under because business was slow, and remember, we were also seeing a lot of competition globally from automakers in China and Japan um, and abroad, even in Europe, uh, the government realized that, you know, people would suffer as a result of that. There would be a huge ripple effect. And so they also... Um, received some funds to be able to stabilize their businesses and withstand this difficult time. Uh, the auto industry limped along, uh, but uh, it was it was saved. Host of Making Money on the Fox Business Network, Charles Payne. Reconstituted. You know what's interesting? I guess the most important thing from a political point of view is the auto industry was touted sort of as, hey, you know, we've got to save this, this great American uh, industry. And it is, obviously, the lineage goes back to to Henry Ford, and, uh, you know, we led the way for a long time. But the auto industry really was in the midst then, and and certainly since then, being overtaken by foreign automakers. And even right now, at this very moment, it's the foreign automakers who are building cars in places like Huntsville, Alabama, that, uh, that are driving that industry. So it was more about saving union jobs, more about... Uh, you know, maybe stoking some nostalgia, uh, but the auto industry itself, particularly the American players, we ended up giving Chrysler away. We gave it away for nothing. Uh, so uh, the auto industry is alive and healthy, but it's not the same auto industry that people thought they were saving. We're pleased to be joined by Secretary Paulson and Chairman Bernanke. We thank them for accepting our invitation to be here today. It's a busy time all around. Uh, the, since uh, this financial crisis hit and uh, Congress adjourned. We've had over 20 hearings uh, in, the, in the House of Representatives uh, on the financial crisis, on the challenge to the confidence uh, in our markets. And I thank the distinguished chairman of the committees and the members uh, for their participation in those hearings. Uh, many questions have sprung from those hearings. And as we go forward, we want to have the, current, uh, the best current thinking uh, from uh, the secretary and the chairman. Uh, we need robust oversight, and we know that is essential as we go forward. Uh, we have some questions about the significant alterations that have been made uh, in the implementation of the TARP, uh, the, uh, the uh, crisis in the auto industry and in, in the uh, uh, mortgage foreclosure uh, markets uh, still reigns. Is that the epicenter of the financial crisis? We need to know. Once the government took action and came in, um, with the TARP money for the banks, there was a little bit of confidence that was restored to the market, but it still took a little while to recover, about five or six months, I would say, before the stock market actually bottomed fully and started to, to come out of that. Um, but remember, this was something unprecedented, something we had never, ever seen before. So I don't think investors and the country really knew exactly how to react because I'm not sure they knew what would happen exactly. They knew the government stepped in and it was going to help. But, you know, how insolvent were the banks at that time? What was the scale and scope of the liquidity crunch? I mean, that's what, um, you know, the powers that be that got together, they understood that. But, you know, your average person didn't. Ben Bernanke finally realized that after everything that he had done uh, to stop the crisis, he still had more work to do. Senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. John Hilsenrath. That there was still a lot of stress in the mortgage markets, that uh, th that companies and households were still very uncertain. And so he announced a really large program of what became known in the markets as quantitative easing. 
uh, in which he, he, he said he was going to go out, the Fed was going to go out and buy trillions of dollars worth of mortgage securities and treasury securities uh, and in the process pump trillions of dollars more into the financial system to stabilize the mortgage markets and the banks. And that ended up being the turning point. The banking system today has much more capital in it and that makes it much less likely that the financial system is going to be a source of headwinds, a constraint on future recovery. I, I now, under- if they had not been able to raise private capital, if they were still left with too little capital against potential losses, then we would be facing a much greater challenge. But the problems posed by those assets are substantially addressed by the dramatic improvement in capitalization in the financial system. So let me see if I can just pin this down, though. You say for the 20 tests, uh, the 20 largest banks for which we have stress tests, you believe we have a sense of how much is left in the way of toxic assets on their books? Absolutely. Do we have a dollar figure for that? Well, I'm, I'm again, be happy to uh, summarize for you or have the Fed summarize for you. They put out a lot of detail on exactly very detailed okay. composition of exposures and, by those and banks. And for all the banks for which a stress test was not run, do we uh, have any sense of how much remains in the way of toxic assets my on the compliments, banks these books? My, my compliments to you for highlighting this question. We're a country of 9,000 banks, yes. not just 20 banks. That's right, although and, fewer every day. Uh, fewer every day, uh, but that's the, sort of a necessary process of repair and restructuring that we're going through. But And many of those banks came into this crisis with more capital than the big banks held. But many of them also had more concentrated exposure to commercial real estate, other real estate stuff. So there is a lot of challenge ahead for the financial system as a whole. The Congressional Budget Office uh, provides updates every year on how much money uh, was extended and how much was lost. And part of the story was that the government ended up not extending as much money as it had the power to. It had the power to extend more than $700 billion in um, loans and equity purchases. Uh, The most up-to-date numbers as of 2021 was that it extended $443 billion. Of that $443 billion, $377 was paid back and $66 billion was written off. So that's not a small number, $66 billion, but compared to what taxpayers thought they were going to lose in the moment, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, It's a pretty small sum. Well, the money money was paid back. There are certain factions. I don't think we got all of it back from certain areas. Um, I think we lost money like with the auto loans and some of the others. Uh, But it was the money was paid back. Uh, In fact, ironically, in some areas like uh, taking over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, They've actually become cash machines for for government, uh, which is which is interesting because they've more than paid back, and still uh, they're being shaken down for for all the excess cash that they make to this very day through Republican and Democratic administrations. So, uh, if anything, they should be released and be allowed to go back to being a publicly traded entity. But the money was recouped. Was the reputation ever truly recouped? Was the trust ever truly recouped? The answer is no. AIG, once the largest insurance company in America, became the single largest recipient of bailout dollars. AIG was the victim of one of its own divisions, AIG's financial products, which engage in the risky and unregulated trading 
that many blame for the company's collapse. The American taxpayers came to the rescue with an $85 billion bailout of AIG last September. That was followed by more money in October, more again in November, and still more in March of this year. In the end, the federal government had committed $180 billion to save AIG. Americans were justifiably outraged when they learned shortly thereafter that AIG was paying $165 million in bonuses to executives at the very division that caused the collapse of the company. We got bailed out! We got sold out! Occupy Wall Street was all about, you know, you can't give government money to big banks so that they could continue to go out, um, leverage themselves, take these kinds of risks. It's this thing called moral hazard. Um, essentially that if you do that, you create a situation where people think that the government will always be there to bail them out. So, you know, why do they have to be prudent and make good choices? So what brought you here today? I'm here because I'm really discontent with the way that this country is going and the way that it has been going and the fact that I'm a part-time student at CUNY and they just raised the tuition and I can't afford to pay for my classes and people are getting evicted from their homes and the banks are getting bailed out, and meanwhile we're fighting wars that I don't support, and I didn't ever support, and I feel like a lot of people feel the same way. You know, to a degree they got it right, some of it right, I think, you know, uh, because this is still going on. The part I didn't like is conflating Wall Street, lower Manhattan, these folks that, you know, take a helicopter on Friday from their office in lower Manhattan to the Hamptons for the weekend, that's not capitalism. And, And even Wall Street the place, the physical place versus Wall Street, where we go to buy and sell, I think are two different places. And and so where I thought the Occupy Wall Street got it wrong was conflating the notion that those folks down there um, represented, the, you know, uh, capitalism. I don't think they, I really, to this moment, I still don't think they do. And, and there are some things wrong with them. You know, this, you know, this idea that profits above everything else, I think there are limits to that. So... Uh, it was an amazing thing, but it got kind of crazy, too. <laughs> I went down there a few times. I did a piece with Geraldo once, and I even went one weekend, and I took my kids, and that might have been a mistake. As we walked through the place, it was really raunchy. <laughs> it was nasty, all right? That's all I can tell you. So there was another movement that kind of that followed up Occupy Wall Street called Fed Up. And that was more of a uh, progressive movement, left left leaning movement that was arguing that the Fed um, wasn't doing enough to help workers and uh, again, had bailed out banks, but but wasn't enacting policies that helped workers. Um, It was mostly progressive progressives. But, you know, the populism that 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 emerged after that crisis had many faces and the the faces showed up on the right and on the left. It it wasn't, um, it it it, it was in, in in some ways nonpartisan in that it was uh, occupied by by angry Americans across the political spectrum. It would not be a tea party without colonial garb. We're just a bunch of uh, ordinary citizens who are concerned about the direction our country is taking, and uh, you know we're going more and more in debt. Uh, We're losing our standard of living. 
We're losing our freedoms, which is a big concern to me. My party has left me behind. I am a conservative Democrat, which no longer exists. Last year, I thought it would I would throw a little tea party, and we got 3,000 of our uh, friends together and did this. And um, this year, I wasn't going to do it because I have a young one. And I saw that it's not getting better. This economy is not getting better. The passing of an almost um, $1 trillion health care bill, it's not getting better. And if I don't stand up for the moms, who's going to? In 2010, um, there was this grassroots movement, and I was at Fox and remember looking up on screens and seeing a lot of patriotic-looking Americans taking to the streets. They were frustrated by what they were seeing. They felt like there was too much one-party government spending, uh, government subsidies, bailouts for all kinds of folks, um, and President Obama changing the way we did health care in this country with Obamacare on only Democratic votes. And so a lot of frustrated Americans, uh, conservative Americans, took to the streets and said they didn't want that anymore. They didn't want this any longer. It was a a grassroots political movement of people who just were fed up, didn't like seeing what they saw as one party rule in Washington, too much spending, too much government overreach. And so they took to the streets and a lot of folks with that kind of thinking ran for office in 2010. The most famous one probably being Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, who reflected the views of the Tea Party movement. And he and many others came to Washington promising to get a handle on government spending and basically reflecting this grassroots movement that had taken over the country that summer. What is great about a Tea Party is you can't buy this kind of energy. This is the energy of real people. I stood at this tea party a year ago and I asked for your help. And I said, let's take our government back. And I think we're starting to take it back one day at a time and the entire country is seeing how we're starting to take it back. Well, I have to say that the recovery has been uh, obviously slower than we would like. And we're doing everything we can uh, to uh, accelerate hiring. Manufacturing has actually been a bright spot in this recovery. Uh, We've actually seen more growth faster in manufacturing than in the rest of the economy. Now part of that is the work that we did uh, in the auto industry, which is obviously very important to Ohio. Uh, We were uh, about to see the liquidation of Chrysler and GM. They have come roaring back. They're now making a profit. They're actually increasing market share. Part of it is restructuring and better management, but part of it is also Uh, starting to look at what are the the products of the future. How can we build uh, cars that are fuel efficient? How can we uh, uh, win the the race for electric cars? On every front, we are going to work for the American people. Nowhere in our focus is, and and I mean this so strongly, and our focus has to be so strong, but my focus has been all about jobs. And jobs is one of the primary reasons I'm standing here today as your president. And I will never, ever disappoint you, believe me. I will not disappoint you. More than 1.7 million infections in the U.S., and there's no end in sight to the coronavirus outbreak. The economic damage is also intensifying. More than 40 million Americans have lost their jobs since the outbreak started. And governors are pushing to get folks back to work as soon as possible. All 50 states are now in the process of easing social distancing, including nine states and the District of Columbia on Friday. 
Though in coronavirus hotspots, there are still significant restrictions in place. In July, the Congressional Budget Office was projecting unemployment over 10.5% through the end of 2020. So they thought 2020 and maybe it would be a lot longer than that. Some projections where you'd go through the entire year and uh, that includes uh, a lot of months in the following year, 2021. And instead, the unemployment rate plunged really to the surprise of many, all the way down to 8.4 percent in August. And that's the second largest single month decline on record. And we have the first. We have both of them. So we have the uh, two number one declines. Decline meaning positive, not negative. Down 30,000. We hit it and we stayed over it. And food for thought, we have never seen the Dow 30 so high. Other market averages sprinting at or near records themselves. In June, the average price, not the most common price, but the average price nationwide was, uh, was over $5 a gallon. Today, the average price for a gallon of gas is $3.76. That's adding up to real savings for American families, the difference between those prices. And this difference uh, makes a difference in a difficult time. Americans across the country have stepped up and they, to do the right thing. These days, if you want to be a homeowner, you need to earn at least six figures as spiking mortgage rates and rising housing prices have pushed monthly mortgage payments through the roof. New data from Redfin showing that a home buyer has to earn $107,000 to afford the $2,600 monthly mortgage payment on the typical U.S. home. That's up 45% from $73,000 a year ago. Mortgage rates have risen this year at their fastest rate on record. Today, though, that number falling to 6.61%, according to Freddie Mac, and incomes, of course, haven't kept up. What I hope is that um, as we move forward from the financial crisis and again from the just tremendous uh, crisis of the, the lockdowns of the last couple of years. Senior advisor to Morgan Stanley Wealth Management, Gary Kaminsky. Is that board of directors recognize that it's a responsibility. It's not a privilege to just basically um, live the high life. We want the best for ourselves and, and our families and our children. Host of Your World on the Fox News Channel and Cavuto, coast to coast on the Fox Business Network. Neil Cavuto. But we realize over time that someone's idea of success can be very, very different. Well, we might, you might look at, you know, your friends and your family and that they have some job security. Someone else might say, I'm not happy unless I have a private jet or two private jets unless I have homes all over the place, not just one home. So I, I think our definition of success and security and making a go of it in this country, in this world, has changed to the point where it's not enough that you're happy and content, have enough money to always have food on the table for your family, to those who say, food on the table doesn't cut it. I want lots of tables, I want lots of homes. I want lots of assets. I want more than what you want. I'm not happy until I have all that stuff. You might be happy with a fraction of that stuff. Therein lies the divide. Crisis is an interesting word because it depends how you define crisis. Are there elements in the market that I see triggering another crisis? 
you know, to compare it to the, the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, I don't really know. Do I see trouble spots in the market? Absolutely. And I think that uh, inflation is probably the biggest one. Um, we got recent numbers that indicate year over year prices are up 7.7%. And so while people got excited that they're not at their peak levels, um, that's still a really high number. And I'm not necessarily sure that I believe raising interest rates is the only thing that will cure inflation. As a matter of fact, I think that um, alone, the Fed can't cure inflation. Part of the problem is the energy policy in this country and the fact that we're seeing oil prices you know, around the $90 level and the fact that um, gas prices and diesel prices are high. And the reason I say that is you don't realize how much oil impacts everything that we do in the business supply chain, not just from transporting goods around, um, but to the materials that make, you know, plastics and holders and and, and goods that go into other goods as, as inputs. Um, and so it pretty much touches everything. As long as oil prices are staying this high, I think that, um, you know, prices for things across the board will stay high. Remember, the Fed's target for inflation is 2%. We've got a long way to go from 7.7 to get down to 2. Um, and I don't think just raising rates and slowing the housing market alone is enough. It's important to study what went on in 2007. Former CEO of Washington Mutual, Kerry Killinger. But we try to really focus on what lessons have we learned from that? Which things are we doing better? Which things are maybe even riskier today than they were then? And on the positive side, on the things we're doing better, the Federal Reserve knows now it has to provide liquidity consistently or it runs the risk of recreating another financial crisis. You know, so I think that the Fed has definitely improved on how to manage. Uh, I think on the other, on the growing risk side, I think uh, we are just creating huge asset and debt bubbles and our whole system is more fragile today than it was a, a decade ago, or in 2007 or 2008. The fact that we got through the crisis doesn't excuse the crisis from happening in the first place and, and the lack of accountability with a lot of the measures. Former chair of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, Sheila Baer. Yes, they stabilized the system, but a lot of people were not held to account. This should have been held to account. Uh, it diluted market discipline. Um, in a way that I think has made the system, we, we have more capital in the system now, so some of the regulations have taken care of that. But I think there's still this assumption at the end of the day, if the financial system gets into trouble again, no big deal, the Fed's gonna step in. And you actually saw that during the pandemic, and you know, I don't fault that. I think it was over the top, but obviously the pandemic was nobody's fault, that was a disease. So, but, but the lack of accountability, the dilution of market discipline, I think, and it's been corrosive to our culture. I think that, you you know, all this stuff kind of evolved into the populist political political extremes that we're experiencing now. Yeah, I, I, it's, I just, I just find it, uh, I'm sort of, sort of, a, I'm a student of all of this and I'm always trying to learn every day myself uh, uh, how we got here and what's gone on. And, you know, there's nothing new under the sun per se. Um, and we always find a way out of it. Having said that, though, we should not have a false sense that we're ordained to be the greatest country in the world, no matter what mistakes we make. I think it's time to start learning from them and making sure we can at least mitigate them. I don't know that you can always stop them because human nature is human nature, but I think we should be smart enough in the future to, to mitigate them and, and do the things that so 
future generations have uh, opportunities to have this wonderful life. We've also learned other lessons since that crisis. I, I think when when the era that started that that created the housing boom began, you know, a lot of Americans thought that we had this system of uh, market driven democratic capitalism that the rest of the world was going to follow. And in the decade after the financial crisis, we've seen Russia go in a different direction. We've seen China now going in a different direction. And I think America has discovered that this system of democratic market-driven capitalism, um, it's not inevitable and it's not easy. We have to keep working at it. And uh, for me, that's one of the biggest lessons to emerge from, from, from that crisis, that this journey that our founders started to create a system where markets create prosperity and Americans choose their leaders uh, has to constantly be improved and reinvented. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.